Welcome to Adapt Peace Building with Stephen Gray. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Adapt Peace Building podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with someone called Cedric de Koning. Cedric is a person whose work I've been following for some years. He's always seemed to have a very keen mind in peace building, whether that relates to United Nations peace operations, or more recently, how we understand and respond to conflict in divided societies when we face very complex and unpredictable dynamics. So we cover a range of super interesting topics today. We talk about how we understand conflict through the lens of complexity, what this means in terms of local ownership or self-organization of systems. We relate the concept of resilience understood from a complexity theory sense to the sustainability of peace agreements. We talk about the role of a peace builder, particularly the role of insiders versus outsiders and why it can undermine the sustainability of peace building when the outsiders are trying to control too much. So this presents a number of challenges to our traditional ways of doing things. And we trace some of those with some really interesting examples from Cedric's work. I think you're really gonna enjoy this presentation today. Cedric, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you today about adaptive peace building. I feel like this is a call that we've wanted to have for, for some time. We have done some work together before. Uh, in relation to this topic and, and written some things. But I've always been impressed at the approach that you take in understanding how we can do peace building in a way that's more reflective of some of the dynamic, difficult and unpredictable contexts in which we work. Um, so just to give our listeners a sense of who you are and, and who you work for, Cedric is a senior research fellow with the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. He's also a senior advisor for the African Center for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes. And Cedric, um, you have a shared interest in this topic, and I know that you will unpack that uh, adaptive peace building in a lot of depth for our listeners, but I just wanted to provoke you a little or frame this global situation in which we find ourselves, in which we have a set of complex challenges in how we respond to conflict in divided societies. And these contexts from Syria, uh, Ukraine, South Sudan, Myanmar, many different places where society are facing divisions and sometimes very violent divisions. These are very complex and unpredictable environments where the situation on the ground changes often. We often don't understand what is causing the conflict, who is implicated at different times. And it's very difficult to know what the appropriate strategy is. Yet, we have this set of tools that are based on an understanding that we can understand the context, we can develop a plan, we can assign people to different tasks, and we can roll it out and try and fix things. And for many of us, that's that context and solution type response has always seemed fundamentally at odds. And there's another dimension to it is we, we know from our experience that to help people in divided societies, the solutions need to come from within. They need to grow from within that, that society. And we talk about this all the time in terms of local ownership. Yet, our approach to trying to support a lot of these countries or conflict across countries, often the ideas, the impetus and the funding, the agency comes from outside. So 
that's something that I've always grappled with and felt like I met a kindred spirit when you seem to pick up on some of those issues. So I just wanted to start by getting a sense of how you respond to that and what the impetus might be for something like adaptive peace building. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's uh, really great to be talking to you and, and be part of your podcast series, which I really enjoy and, and, and uh, can highly recommend to anyone. Um, yeah, the way you framed it, introduced the issue is really also how I've come to this field. I think some of my first experiences was when I was uh, deployed as a United Nations volunteer to the, as part of the United Nations Transitional Administration in East Timor. Uh, back in uh, 1999, and uh, uh, discovered firsthand, you know, the kind of uh, realization that uh, a lot of the approaches that you've come to the field with fall short of the reality and the expectations uh, that people have of you, and uh, especially the what I found really interesting is the degree to which uh, the people with whom we were working at that point had so much knowledge about their own situation and and, uh, what needs to be done. And they were trying to very gently and humbly coach us into the right direction uh, of what was obvious to them, but not to us. So that was probably part of my first realizations in terms of this uh, tension between an approach that we've been taught in terms of how to do peace building and and this idea that we as external experts have the agency to diagnose a problem and uh, prescribe a cure and that if we only implement that plan or that designed approach, it should have a certain outcome. And the certainty with which that was presented and assumed in, in our applications for funding and and our reporting on on what we do versus the reality of of a process that was much more of a back and forth realization experience uh, adaptation of the work as you go along learning from the field and this general understanding we have about uh, uh, in the literature and elsewhere that you know situations are complex that things are difficult to predict, to manage. And so when I came across um, you know, a field of research that really were focused on, on trying to understand complex systems, uh, I really was very intrigued by that and looked into that in more detail to see to what degree can we learn from that field uh, also for the area of peace building and conflict management. And I wondered if you might unpack for us the value of looking through that systemic lens and how you might apply that in a domain like peace building? Mm. Well, I think for me, uh, one of the key things that come out of a a complexity lens is, uh, first of all, an acceptance of uh, the situation as uncertain, that uncertainty is not uh, some kind of a problem that needs to be fixed, but is the, the normal state of affairs. And that is, you know, because of other elements in our understanding of complex systems, such as uh, non-linearity and the fact that uh, situations uh, develop what we refer to in the field as through through emergence. In other words, that that things uh, cannot be uh, known or predicted beforehand or planned in a way that they can be, you know, 
set up without um, taking into account the kind of natural development of these situations. I think one of the things I I find interesting in that sense is the, the kind of contrast between the kind of engineering metaphor or the medical metaphor of uh, you know designing a a, a situation as a solution or uh, a kind of expert doctor making a diagnosis of a problem versus the kind of gardening metaphor of uh, uh, nurturing a situation uh, where the agency lies in nature itself or in society itself. And we could perhaps try to influence that and steer that in a certain direction. Uh, and also the, the degree to which things take a certain amount of time to develop, to mature, and uh, that, that's not necessarily something that we could you know, speed up to necessarily a large degree. Uh, one has to work with, with the natural pace that you may find uh, in a society and so forth. And so in that, that's some of the aspects that I, that I found quite intriguing in my engagement with, uh, with a kind of a complexity lens in the peace field. It's really useful um, to draw that distinction between a complex environment in which you have far from perfect information and things evolve in ways that are very difficult to predict versus a linear type of problem or situation in which you can do A and have a clear expectation that B is then going to happen, which will eventually lead you to F, which is your desired outcome. And I've had some interesting conversations with my friends that work in, in mine action where they have much more of a mechanical uh, linear type problem and they have command and control type approaches to fixing it, which make a lot of sense. So they survey an area, they know that there is um, likely to be a certain amount of landmines or unexploded ordnance in that area. They assign a group of people with a specific protocol to measure and assess that space and eventually bring in people and tools that can take those things out of the ground, which they can report against that in a structured and linear way to donors, and that all makes sense. Now, try to apply that same mentality to a election cycle, which is happening at the same time as a peace agreement in a country like Colombia or Myanmar, and your role is to try and work with the parties to that conflict to reach and implement the peace agreement now, there is no way that you can just direct your five henchmen and say, we're going to do A through F and achieve all of these different results. There's far too much uncertainty. It's far too dynamic. And in those kind of environments, and some people might be familiar with the, the cloud problem versus the clock problem, which is something that Karl Popper talked about, with these cloud problems, these unpredictable problems, there's a role for trying to First, be humble about how much we do and don't know about which strategies are going to work. But secondly, variation and selection. So how do we try different things and see what works? Now, when you're pulling landmines out of the ground, you don't want to be too experimental. <laughs> uh, but when you're working in <laughs> but when you're working in politics, when you're working with relationships and people, you might try certain things, see whether it resonates, see whether you're getting traction. If it doesn't, you have to pivot another way and try something else. Um, so I'm interested in that distinction about when we should be adaptive and when we shouldn't. And when you think about peace building, what is 
adaptive peace building and, and how might that look that is different from some of our traditional command and control uh, approaches? Yeah. No, I, I fully agree with the way you've laid it out and the challenge there. And the way to, or one way perhaps to deal with it is through, as you say, the, the, the kind of adaptive approach. And the way I would understand the adaptive approach is that it's an approach that, uh, that at the outset, as you say, accepts that there isn't one particular way to deal with the situation. It's not about implementing a pre-designed program, but it is uh, you know, based on your understanding of the situation, based on what it is you, you want to achieve, you engage, you try a number of things. Uh, uh, it should be done as far as possible, of course, with your with your local counterparts, with your with the people that you are working with jointly with them. But that you that you employ simultaneously a number of different ways in which you could perhaps deal with this with this particular situation, and that you then closely monitor the feedback, the responses you get to the different ways that you are trying to to engage with the situation. And based on that feedback, that you then uh, very carefully and in an engaged process decide to perhaps uh, stop some of the activities because they don't seem to be having the desired effect. Uh, perhaps others may seem promising but, uh, but are limited in some way, so you may want to expand them. Uh, some may be seeming to have the desired effect, but you would want to experiment with them in, in ways and in broadening uh, the different ways in which that particular approach could work. And this is a continuous process then of, of adaptation. And as you said, the, the two key elements of that process is variation and selection, right? So make sure there's a variety of approaches and a conscious process of selecting as you go along, which of those to discontinue, which of those to continue with, which of those to expand. And I think one, one thing to keep in mind is that even those that seem to be having a desired effect may not continue to do so uh, for a long period of time. People respond to those, also those persons or groups in a particular society uh, that, that may not want the situation to develop in the same direction that you would like it to develop may start to respond and react and counter uh, what you're trying to achieve. So none of these are, are given and will work all the time. And, and that uh, further emphasizes the need to continuously review, monitor, and adapt uh, the approaches that you implement. So that's how we would broadly, you know, uh, in my mind, uh, make sense of, of an adaptive approach to peace building. I think you've hit on some critical elements there. The focus on learning as a activity that feeds the program, uh, the improvement of the program, more so or in parallel to an accountability function. It seems to me that that is really important to make your work better, not just to tell donors and others how successful that you're being. Uh, another thorny challenge that this raises is um, David Booth from the Overseas Development Institute talks about in trial and error, our problem is not so much trialing things, it's understanding the error or not being willing to respond when things aren't working. And you mentioned that organizations might want to continue with a certain approach, even if it's not working. And we see that often, you know, people are going to keep championing human rights, even in the face of 
increased human rights abuses. And they might stick to particular strategies to do that because they hope that it's going to reach a tipping point, uh, that it's going to create a groundswell of public support, or just that because they believe it's the right thing to do. Uh, so I don't know if I have any answers to this question, or if you do, about how do we know when we should give up on a certain strategy, when we should actually uh, try something different? How do we manage that as people and organizations? And how do we manage that with the people that are funding our work? to say, hey, you gave us all this money to do this stuff. It's not working, but we'd like to try something else and, and hope that they don't cut us off. You know, those are all really interesting and, and difficult questions, Steve. I mean, there is so many incentives in, in our development and peace building systems that drive institutions, organizations to, to have a bias towards reporting success to have a bias against admitting some kind of a, uh, a lack of progress or, or lack of success. There's, there's lots of pressures in terms of, uh, you know, spending money within a certain time cycle and, and all those kind of uh, very strong incentives, which of course, you know, result in the kind of dysfunctions that, that we've talked about. But I do think there's, there is more and more a culture building around adaptation and acceptance of the need for adaptation. I think for the first time I hear people starting to acknowledge that if they do not see adaptation over time in program management, that means something is wrong. That means that uh, clearly things must have changed during this period of time. And I can't see how you've tried to pick up on that and changed your programming. Whereas, you know, a few years ago, if you deviated from the plan, that was somehow you know wrong, and you needed to explain why you you deviated from the from the program. And there seems to be a more of a culture coming in now of acceptance, I would say, around some of the the need for adaptation. Uh, I think it will take some more time, of course, on the issue of um, situations where you are convinced based on whatever feedback you have and knowledge that you have, that you are doing the right thing, but the situation is not responding in the way that you would like it to do. Um, I think there's one way to assess that is to look at, for instance, uh, let's say peer review approaches. Would your peers have done the same thing in the same circumstances? In other words, the kind of a confidence that, yes, I'm doing the right thing and I just need to keep on, on hammering at it until maybe the dynamics change. I mean, sometimes we do have the situation where you are actually uh, perhaps having a slow building effect on a situation, but there isn't a, a major reflection of that. And then you cross a certain tipping point or the dynamics change in a situation and suddenly what you've been doing, you know, meets the need of, of what you would like to try to achieve. So, so in those circumstances, you know, we don't, I don't think we can just always rely on, you know, some kind of a progress or change. Sometimes we, we need to rely on, on um, knowledge about the, the kind of best fit approach that you are trying to employ. And in, in the face of a, a frozen conflict type of situation, this is perhaps the best thing to try to keep doing, to keep a toe in the door, uh, to keep engaging, to keep uh, so that when the situation changes, perhaps uh, you are in the right place to then capitalize on, on that change and on that dynamics. 
that makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of a few threads of conversation that we're having with Christian Aid Ireland, uh, who has a, an adapted programming approach in six or seven countries globally. I don't think they'd mind me saying this. I'm sure I'll, I'll find out if, if they do. They're doing great work. Uh, and some of the things that, that we're learning is their partner organizations, they love the flexibility of adaptive programming for the reason that their context is changing and they need to adapt to that and they prefer to not be beholden to targets and activities that are no longer relevant. That can be somewhat different from adaptation, which is born of a realization that what they were doing was not working. And people can be uh, beholden to a particular way of working for many reasons, sunk cost, identity, dogmatism. And one thing that's been found is uh, that not all programs or partners are amenable to an adaptive approach. And we perhaps shouldn't think that all problems, partners, or approaches should be adaptive. You might want to, in an organization, sequester parts of your organization, some of your activities explicitly to be adaptive and have the type of people and mindset and processes that really enable that. Uh, another feature of trying to be adaptive is that there's been some success in not questioning what people do, their specific strategies, but questioning their assumptions. What do you need to hold true in order to think that this thing is going to work? And if you go through the back door a little bit like this, it's less confrontational than saying what you're doing is not working. You need to do it differently. And there's a third piece um, that we might pick up on later. Uh, but is any of that resonating for you and how you work with people and organizations? Yeah, absolutely. I think when the adaptive approach is framed in the context of uh, success or failure or framed in such a way that it kind of uh, suggests wrongdoing, you know, then I think we're going in the wrong direction. And then those kind of internal bureaucratic incentives that people have about um, you know, not wanting to be singled out or, or fear of being somehow unfairly judged uh, will will become very strong in the process. So I think it's important to to not frame it in that kind of way, but to frame it rather in the way of this is you know a way to look at what effect uh, the overall effort is having within the larger context, and to frame it in the way that if if we can uh, as a result of this have a better understanding of you know where the shortcomings are. This is the way to find the solutions that you may also need yourself in terms of more resources or, or different types of uh, methodologies or techniques. Uh, but this is a way that's going to help you to, to be more effective in what you're doing. And if we frame it in that kind of, I think, less uh, threatening way, people are more willing to engage with the process. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's going to lead into my next question. And I feel that the link between being adaptive and what local ownership means, how you work between people that are in and vested in that context and you as an outsider and what you bring, I would love to explore with you what adaptive 
the adaptive approach adds to this conversation about local ownership and what the role of so-called insiders and outsiders should be. I would love to engage with you on, on the on the local ownership issue. It's a it's a, a topic that I've, I'm very passionate about. I would like to approach it in two ways. Uh, the one is first a kind of a, for me, a, a kind of a philosophical realization of, of the importance of local agency. And this comes again from a kind of a understanding or trying to draw insights from, from uh, a complexity. And um, one of the, the key tenets of complexity is uh, self-governance or self-organization. Uh, and complex systems are systems that have the ability to organize themselves without a controlling agent. That's kind of a key criteria or characteristic of a complex system as opposed to a complicated system. And that tells me that uh, for in a peace building context, for a specific approach to be self-sustainable, it's critically important that the community, the society, uh, are engaged and drive that themselves free from you know, some kind of a external process that is the incentive or that is the driver for that particular solution or, or approach that one may, may take. So I think if one takes that on the one hand and then you think in terms of, of an adaptive approach on the other, let's say the methodology of an adaptive approach which requires learning and reflection in, in a participatory way and uh, that provides for uh, regular um, and iterative processes of reflecting together and that accepts from a starting point that there isn't some kind of a overarching final solution but that the solution has to emerge from from the process, from within, then that really creates a lot of space for local ownership, for engagement with communities, with societies in the process. So I think both the the kind of uh, acceptance of the importance of local agency on the one hand, and on the other hand, the process methodology, if you like, of adaptive programming, both really lend themselves to create a lot of space for local ownership and local engagement. You're reminding me of uh, some unpleasant memories that I have, and you might have experienced things like this as well when you're uh, working in a context and you have an international expert that flies in, has been there for a couple of days, and proceeds to tell them how they should fix their problems. And sometimes the examples are, are comical and certainly cringeworthy, and you're sitting there with your local colleagues just embarrassed for yourself. And as an outsider, that people can come in so naively and believe themselves to be experts when your your local colleagues are so capable. I'm wondering with what you describe, what is the different kind of role for the international, maybe international community is not the best term, but as someone that is not as vested in that context, it sounds like you're describing a facilitation type role in which you're supporting the emergence the interaction between stakeholders and the emergence of um, aspects of supporting some kind of peaceful transition rather than something that's more directive. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, I think uh, peace building in that context is essentially process facilitation. It is, you know, linking up uh, local communities, perhaps with uh, resources, 
and uh, particular technical knowledge that may rely elsewhere, but that the difference is essentially not one where a solution has been thought out somewhere else and your role is to implement it. And local ownership means convincing you know, local counterparts to go along with the, the pre-designed solution. But rather, your role is to facilitate a process of engagement between international expertise as potential options that people could consider, uh, what has been done elsewhere, how other societies have approached a similar problem, and linking up with potential resources but also really creating the space for agency, for participation, and providing a process where that can play out. Now, having said all of that, um, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware of the difficulty we, we are in reality sometimes. Uh, people are in situations where there's limited time from an external perspective. There's a certain window within which funds are available, or there's a certain window in which you are obliged to carry out a certain programmatic activity. And it's usually those external drivers that then you know, create the situations where people would have liked to act differently, but they feel they're constrained in terms of the degree to which they can engage in a participatory approach and so on. So those are certainly realities we have to contend with. Uh, but I think at the same time, it's important for us to discuss and analyze and, and put as an alternative, you know, the way we think local ownership should play out in an adaptive approach and then see together as we move on and try to improve our practice, how we can find more ways of, of really bringing that to realization. Mm. I, I feel that part of our responsibility is to demonstrate that this is more effective, uh, that an adaptive approach, which can respond to context changes, which can vary and select for effectiveness, that can better draw upon the resources and understanding of local people, we need to show that that works better because we have to overcome as a global community of practice, a lot of institutional processes and interests that want to have blueprints that they can assign money to and report against. That's how things are set up. But even more so, a mentality which despite continued examples of failure, still thinks that we can approach a complex situation with a command and control top-down approach and try and fix it. And if you look in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, just to give two very prominent examples, there was still a thinking that to support a society to have a transition, you could go in there and implement a relatively top-down approach and not work in the type of facilitated way that you're talking about, but in a more directive use of coercive power way to try and change the outcome without understanding how that could metastasize in so many ways and produce this quagmire of new threats. Um, that, to me, points to not just institutional uh, dogmatism, but a problem with our, the way that we think about how change happens. So we have a real challenge on our hands, and it's kind of radical to think that we could propose a, an approach which is so 
fundamentally different. So it gives me some encouragement to think that we're still in our infancy of, of doing this and we still have quite a long way to go. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I think you're also right that I think one of our major challenges is to uh, now, uh, you know, start to implement uh, some of these ideas and approaches. And, and some people, as you, meant, you mentioned, some are already uh, implementing some of these approaches so that we can then start to generate the evidence and show, you know, under what circumstances and, and in what ways do this uh, adaptive approach generate, uh, you know, let's say better results. But one thing I do want to mention, I think what you mentioned uh, made me think about the earlier question that you had about, you know, under what circumstances is adaptive approaches perhaps more appropriate than others. And I think the you mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan. I can think of a few others where, where we need to be, or, or what I would say is one of the reasons perhaps why an adaptive approach not necessarily work in, in some of those contexts is because the the intention is not really to generate a self-sustainable peace process, right? The the intention is something else. And the intention is perhaps to achieve, you know, objectives that are not really related to a self-sustainable peace, although that may be the rhetoric. And you would find in those circumstances, you know, there's actually another goal that is being pursued. And and that would explain, you know, the distance between uh, what's actually happening and the results on the ground and the stated rhetoric. But in those cases where the aim is truly to generate a self-sustainable peace, uh, for me, there's there's no question that that means then, uh, you know, that you need a locally generated solution, and therefore a process such as an adaptive approach should be a process that is a much better fit for generating that kind of outcome in those contexts. So it would be, I guess, one one criteria that must be really a genuine objective is to generate a self-sustainable peace. Sustainability, uh, for me, ties closely to this idea of resilience. So if I'm a, a mediator or a peace builder coming in with my flag and a few answers for people uh, and in inserting myself into a process, you know, to use a kind of extreme case, then I'm introducing what in some sense could be a source of fragility. If I'm offering something that is new, that it's I'm me, it's me maintaining some momentum, it's me providing some answers, what if I'm not there? What is left in terms of the interaction between parties, between um, the processes of peace building? So I wonder if you might talk about how a complexity lens, how an adaptive approach might have offer more in terms of making a process more resilient because there are shocks, there are up and downs in these processes and they, they can't be made of glass and, and able to break easily. Yes, no, I mean, if we say our aim is to arrive at a, a self-sustainable peace, um, resilience is a critical element of that because uh, it speaks to the, the sustainability. And resilience in this context for me would prefer to a society or community uh, have the social institutions in place that enable them to manage shocks or setbacks or, or unexpected turn of events. And that it means that they have the, you know, they've overcome a certain level of fragility or vulnerability to change. This in some way perhaps suggests that there's a degree of complexity in that society that gives them the ability to process and absorb, you know, such kinds of shocks. 
And this is um, through a process of engagement. I do think international and national local peace builders can help societies uh, over time to develop that resilience. I think that's in a sense part of what a sustaining peace approach is about. Uh, so to try and, and uh, generate those local capacities uh, for, and that essentially would mean strengthening social networks, uh, strengthening social institutions, giving space for local agency to develop, uh, strengthening linkages between different parts, you know, civil society, formal, uh, strengthening informal, the links between informal and formal systems, whether it's justice systems and, and so forth. So these, these are all things that I think could contribute to strengthening the resilience of a society or, or a community to make them more uh, self-sustainable in the face of you know, potential likely uh, setbacks and shocks that they will need to deal with over time. This is an area that I'd be interested to learn more. This is new for me in trying to theorize and think about what is it tangibly in terms of networks, uh, relationships, capacities, that provides the foundation for resilience, the ability of a social political system to flex and adjust without tearing in the face of change. And there are some concepts that might be relevant, like how tightly coupled things are, or how loosely coupled, how dependent they are on each other, Tim Hartford, talks a lot about that in the book, Adapt. Uh, but I like the way that you're also coming at it in terms of the existence of relationships and information flow between different agents in a social network. And it reminds me of the idea of um, a networks or systems and what are their points of vulnerability. If there are, are a few points that they are highly vulnerable, peace can fall out and the resilience can collapse. But if that vulnerability is somehow spread over many different nodes in that network, then it can resist some of those threats differently. It's not an area that I understand well, but I would like to understand well in terms of how local international people supporting a process foster that type of, of resilience. No, I think uh, my, my understanding goes along the same way. It's essentially about um, you know increasing networking increasing connections between different networks the idea is that you know the the stronger and the more diverse the network is in this society the more it's able to handle the, let's say some of the nodes dropping out of the system and other nodes being able to take over and continue uh, the functioning of the system and that means you know not concentrating power or decision-making in a few critical nodes, but distributing that as, as far as possible through you know, different social institutions, layers of social institutions, empowering different parts of a society, whether it's a, you know, civil society, uh, youth groups, women groups, uh, local community leaders, um, strengthening the links, as I mentioned before, between, let's say, formal and informal justice systems. So I think the, the more responsibility and ability to respond to upcoming situations is dispersed over a wider network, uh, the more robust uh, that society should be. And uh, what implications might this type of thinking have for an organization like the United Nations? 
which has a large amount of convening power. It has access to conversations and processes from a very local to very global level. Uh, it has some ability to frame norms and support processes through its own agencies, as well as through NGOs and other actors, governments, politics, non-state actors. So it has a role and capacity and ability to engage with so many parts of this complex system. At the same time, for various reasons, it's not easy for the United Nations to be nimble as opposed to a small NGO, for example. I know that you've had some conversations and some work in your career thinking about uh, how the United Nations works. Is this adaptive peace building approach something you think that the UN could be interested in or how it might apply in some ways? Yeah, I think one one of the things that many people probably think of as a weakness of the United Nations could be a strength in this context. The fact that you know the United Nations is a system of funds and programs and agencies uh, and a secretariat, and that these uh, different parts of the United Nations system has a diverse set of mandates and governing structures, and and that means that it is a a network rather than you know a a, a strong hierarchical organization. In some contexts, uh, that could contribute to a kind of an adaptive approach in the sense that a particular crisis is being responded to by a diverse set of of United Nations actors. And as you know, most of the United Nations actors on the development and humanitarian side work with and through a wide set of implementing partners, which could be non-governmental organizations or local civil society. So in fact, uh, I think it's typically quite a, a diverse set of actors at different levels. And as you said, the UN could play perhaps quite an important role at times in, in helping to frame a situation, helping to create a process for coherence, for coordination around a particular framework, for instance. So those are some of the, uh, let's say, more potential positive attributes of that kind of system. I'm sure somebody else could have answered your question in directly the opposite way and lamented the you know the the lack of coordination in in the UN system uh, but in this kind of context we actually see the value of diversity and the the value of um, even some degree of competition if you like between different agencies and programs because that gives you that variety we spoke of earlier that is so critical to an adaptive approach perhaps what the UN needs to get much better at is the selection part, you know, so needs to get better at uh, systems of uh, assessing what works and what doesn't work. And then uh, systems of deciding what to continue with and what not to continue with. A big part of my uh, work has been with the peace operations. And that's of course the United Nations Secretariat. And what I find quite interesting again is the diversity between, you know, the military and police and various different forms of civilian expertise, political, human rights, uh, civil affairs, public information. And again, uh, in most situations, do create a degree of variety um, that lends itself to adaptive programming. And uh, over the last few months, uh, the institution I work with, the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs, have actually been engaged in working with the UN on on helping them to design and implement a performance assessment system for UN peace operations. 
And that system, I think, is, is very much designed around an adaptive approach of uh, relatively short cycles of um, attempting to look at the way the particular activities that a peace operation is undertaking uh, and the degree to which that is contributing to the desired outcomes that the mission has set for itself and then reflecting on those and, and adapting and making decisions about what changes in their activities are, are necessary. It's a new system, but I'm uh, encouraged by the degree to which uh, leadership and staff that we've been working with in different missions and in headquarters in New York are uh, recognize the need for a more kind of an adaptive approach to performance and are embracing some of the you know methodologies that we've tried to introduce through the system. That's interesting. Just in parentheses, I'm having a conversation next week with a guy called Craig Walters, who was formerly at Overseas Development Institute, and he's now with the Peace Support Fund in Myanmar, specifically to use adaptive approaches to monitoring, evaluation, and learning, which surprised me, and I was really glad to hear. Uh, so he might be someone interesting to connect with. But I'm interested, uh, and I know you probably won't be able to talk in a, a lot of specifics, but in terms of how one measures and understands change from an adaptive approach and puts that into a formal system, are you drawing upon existing methodologies and applying that to the needs of a specific use case, uh, in this case, peace operations, or are you really developing something new, in which case, can I see it all? Um, no, I'd just be very interested to learn how this is evolving. Yeah, it's really an interesting process to be engaged with. And I think, uh, you know, of course, we we have used uh, what we know and what in terms of, uh, you know, knowledge, existing knowledge around adaptive approaches and have tried to design the system. So there's a degree of of working on, let's say, best practice, and there's a degree of adapting that then to the realities of peacekeeping. But essentially, the the process that we are working with is a process that starts off with a, a very strong contextual analysis, which identifies uh, drivers and critical conditions, um, so that the mission is clear about what kind of changes it would like to contribute to in the conflict setting or conflict system that is engaged with. And then there's a process of tracking through sets of indicators, uh, the degree to which you know change is happening and those critical conditions and drivers. And then there's a performance assessment element where we look at the relationship between the activities that the missions undertake and the effect they have or the, the contribution they make to change at the level of outcomes. And this is a kind of then a, a reflective period of looking back and, and that, that analysis uh, generates evidence on performance which uh, management and leadership and command at different levels can then use to, to make decisions about which of those activities that they've undertaken uh, should be expanded, which should be stopped, which should be uh, changed in different ways to try and make them more, more aligned to the desired outcome they would like to achieve. So the, the, the key element is really this contextual analysis, which helps to identify very specifically in the conflict system, you know, what are the conditions that the mission should be trying to influence? And what is the theory of change then behind the activities that they undertake in terms of trying to bring that change about? And then you know, regular iterative processes of assessing whether that's actually happening or not and why not. 
that's encouraging to hear that uh, these methodologies are being picked up. It seems to me that in this conversation, we're covering how NGOs, the multilateral system and others are starting to pick this up. So it speaks to the uptake that is happening. The methodology that you're mentioning just now reminds me of strategy testing approach a little bit that is developed by the Asia Foundation and now used by Christian Aid Ireland and others, which has an explicit theory of change. The assumptions that sit behind that, uh, the evidence sources that are needed to understand whether that change is happening and either an annual or more regular process to reflect on is the change that we desire happening based upon the strategies that we're using? Are our assumptions correct? Do we need to pivot and what that might look like? Uh, so it seems like there's a little bit of crossover there, which makes sense. Cedric, I'm, I'm really inspired and energized by our conversation about what we can do to support people better in the context that we care about. Um, and I can see that a lot of these methods are being picked up and hopefully we can use these to produce better results for people. I would normally just conclude our talk now by thanking you uh, very much for being available and for inspiring me and others. And I know that you have some resources that our listeners can look at if they would like to learn more. Uh, the first is your website, cedricdeconing.net. Uh, that is C-E-D-R-I-C-D-E-C-O-N-I-N-G.net. Uh, there's also an excellent publication that came out in International Affairs, I think, last year, which is Adaptive Peacebuilding, which lays it all bare, what it is and what its potential is. So I really encourage people to look at that. Uh, Cedric, are there any other resources you'd like to point people to? Otherwise, listeners will know that we'll pick up with all of those delicious tidbits in the show notes as well. No, Stephen, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to, to engage with you on this topic of, of adaptive peace building or adaptive approaches to the kind of set of work we are engaged in in the peace field. I guess it's not that often that we, we have the opportunity to try out something new. Um, this is certainly not, you know, a end-all solution to all problems we, we ever had in the field. But I think it's interesting and, and exciting to try some different approaches uh, certainly a lot of what we tried in the past have not been very successful. So I think we, we owe it to the people we work with to try new things, to be innovative where we can. Um, so thank you so much for the opportunity to share. And also, I feel this was really a conversation and, and you you shared and contributed as, as much as I did. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Great talking to you, Cedric. All right, everybody. So thank you for listening in. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Cedric. I hope you learned a lot. I hope it was useful. Check out our blog, adaptpeacebuilding.org slash blog. Got a lot of great stuff coming out from Colombia, where some of our people have been working. We're also getting engaged back in Myanmar again, doing bottom-up adaptive peacebuilding projects. We're working on some work with Christian Aid Ireland to understand their adaptive approach expect that there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff coming out sign up for our newsletter that's always a good way to keep up to date with what we're doing and feel free to reach out to me directly if in any way you want to get involved if you're interested in bottom-up peace building adaptive peace building systems approach complexity approaches to peace building all that fun difficult and fulfilling stuff you can contact me Stephen, with the ph at adaptpeacebuilding.org thank you 
visit us at adaptpeacebuilding.org slash blog 